Uh, hello and welcome to the latest view from the Lock podcast with myself, Bill Donald, the General Manager of Lock Lomond Golf Club. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'd like to welcome uh, a very special guest, uh, Angela High, who is the Museum and Heritage Director of the RNA World Golf Museum. You're very welcome, Angela. Thank you very much, Bill. Good morning. Good morning to you as well. Um, so, Obviously, the museum, RNA Museum, uh, hugely interesting. Uh, how did you how did you manage to get uh, this particular job? It's a very specific role, uh, but a very exciting role if you're involved in golf. It's it's a really exciting role, and 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 part of the reason why I, I love my job so much is is the variety. So sure. I I've been here now for gosh twenty five years this year, and um, wow. and honestly the years have just whizzed past. Um, so my role is really threefold. So looking after the museum, running the museum. Um, also looking after the collection in the Royal and Ancient Golf Club and undertaking heritage work on behalf of the R&D. So it, it really is varied and there's there's always lots of interesting projects um, going on. Um, one, of, one of the biggest ones for us recently in the museum was that we did a, a complete refurbishment of the galleries. Um, we'd started the planning before the pandemic and carried on during COVID and in lockdown, we were having all of our design meetings um, on, on Teams calls and really only met the team properly when it came to the installation phase. So we reopened again um, as the R&D World Golf Museum. Previously, we were the British Golf Museum with a completely new gallery design and, and layout. So it's been a very exciting transformation for us. My goodness, 25 years, Angela. And, you know, uh, what's, if you can, tell us the piece of, of work or art uh, that has excited you the most, um, do you think, over the 25 years? Or something that stands out? I know it's a oh, tough question. Yeah. Maybe, I mean, maybe there's a couple. Maybe there's I, a couple. I, I can give you a couple. One, one is right. never enough. Um, oh. So we have, we're very fortunate to have in, in the Royal and Ancient Golf Club's collection a painting which has been dated to around 1740 Gosh. and it's the earliest known painting of golf in St Andrews and pr probably even the world it's it's the earliest one we know about and it's a scene of of golfers on the links in St Andrews because there was no old course new course jubilee course etc at that time there was only the links and and it shows the golfers on the course with their caddies um sheep all around them there's a windmill which was a feature on 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 the links as well um and then the townscape of St Andrews in the back in the background which is fairly recognisable. And the interesting thing about the golfers is that they're they're wearing almost a sort of military style uniform. Um, and when the painting was later donated to the club sometime in the 19th century, it was minuted um, as, as representing a time when our ancestors took to the field in wigs and cocked hats. Um, and this is this is what you can see. You know, you can see the wigs, you can see the military style uniforms, and, and it's a really, really fascinating 
piece of 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 history and what it shows us about um, the you know the course at that time. It's quite rudimentary in its in its execution, but it's an absolutely fabulous piece of art. Um, a second one which I can tell you about. Um, so we commissioned a painting for the 150th anniversary of the Open. Um, so the artist is almost completing the painting as we speak, and it's being delivered to St Andrews um, late on in, in April, um, where we will have an unveiling. And that's just been a really exciting project to be involved in, you know, going through a tender process to, to select the artist um, and then review his, give him the brief and review his progress as he's been going along. So I'm really, really excited by this one because it was such an important event and an important milestone. And it's great that we we had the opportunity to um to mark it in this way with something that, that, that that's permanent. Well it's a great answer because you you're going from right from the initial start to right up to date. So you've covered both angles, Angela. And you know, I mean if you you, you love golf or love history uh, you know, this museum, really, if you think about it, the collection, uh, which pieces together, you know, the, the history of golf, I, I think, um, and uh, uh, it is, is a must-see. Um, so people listening to the podcast or watching it, you know, uh, if you haven't lived until you've, you've gone to the uh, RNA uh, World Golf Museum, uh, absolutely, absolutely terrific. Now, continue on the history theme, um, Angela, is it true that King Charles II banned golf in Scotland? Uh, why did he do that? And, and kind of what sort of year are we talking about? Yeah, so interestingly, the, the earliest documented reference to golf is when it's actually being banned. And it was banned by King James II through an act of Scottish Parliament in 1457. And the, the, the idea was that the subjects shouldn't be wasting their time playing golf or football, which was the other sport that was banned, but really they should be focusing on their archery because if they ever needed to, you know, to fight for king and country, then they had to be proficient archers. So, so he imposed this ban in 1457 and then King James the third sorry King James the second uh, sorry I'll start again then in 1471 um King James the third reinforced the ban as did oh. King King James the fourth in 1491 however King James the fourth then effectively disobeyed his own rule because the accounts of the Lord's High Treasurers of Scotland um, reference um, some clubs and balls that had been purchased for the king. So, as I say, he basically dis disobeyed his own rule. And then after that, you start to, to find references. For example, 1527, there's a reference to the Barry Lynx, which is also the first time that the word lynx is, is known. Um, and then in 1552, Archbishop John Hamilton, um, through, a, through a charter, um, stipulates the right of the citizens of St Andrews to play golf on the links here. Um, and that's a really momentous um, document as well, real historical significance. Gosh, uh, amazing. We go way back 15 and uh, your hundreds and, and uh, 
you know, the King James sort of trilogy uh, as well, and, and they kept that ban in place. I suppose, you know, uh, they, they, of course they could have fought with uh, with a five iron and thrown a few uh, <laughs> a few Warwick balls or feathered <laughs> balls, you know, at, uh, at the invading uh, English coming over the border. Exactly. Uh, but, dual, yeah. dual purpose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's thinking outside the box. Which, uh, um, so... How much space does a museum give to ladies golf? So, and, and what role does ladies golf play in the museum, Angela? Women's golf plays a really important part in the museum. And um, when the R&D and the Ladies Golf Union merged in 2017, we were then um, basically responsible for looking after a whole new collection. And whilst we did have um, golfing memorabilia, you know, relating to women and, and the history of the women's game, we acquired so much more. Um, and, and what's amazing, um, and where it, where it differs to the men's game actually, is how well documented um, a lot of things are and the photograph albums that the LGU kept and they are extraordinary. They're an absolute wealth um, of you know visual information um, and everything is clearly captioned and, and, and written about and there's some really fantastic um, items in the collection and we're getting more and more into the museum as well and in some ways, it shouldn't really be about, you know, this is this is men's golf and this yes. is women's golf. Yes. It, it's all about the history of the sport and and, and how it's represented. And um, but I think we're still in some ways we're at a stage where we're sort of introducing and and, and expanding um, our knowledge of the women's game as well. Mm. Um, and also maybe worth mentioning, we are working with a PhD student Right. Who's doing her thesis through Glasgow Caledonian University, um, but it, it's it's a collaboration with the university and the museum. Um, so she's basically looking at um, women's golf from I think 1959 up until the 1990s, late 1990s, and so she's looking at all the factors, um, social, cultural, economic factors that impact on on women playing golf and how far they're able to take their sport um, and she's using oral history um, to collate her information and interpret her findings but as part of that she's also writing articles and she's using the museum's collection um, to you know to, to inspire and to really get a lot more information out there um, about the women's game and that's a really really exciting development for us. Well, I mean, it's great to get that sort of research and, you know, you're right, social economic trends, you know, as well. And, and, and you know, what uh, what motivated, uh, you know, um, lady golfers, female golfers uh, at a particular time. And we had on our podcast, uh, our first podcast, Dame Laura Davis, Katrina Matthew and Charlie Hill. And there are three iconic uh, golfers that um, you know have done so much for the game and particularly in, in the UK and, and I think that um, 
you know, and, and that's not to underestimate others, of course. Uh, but you know, we've got Charlie, who's currently fifteenth uh, in the world, uh, so she's very much in her mid twenties, and, and you know, has a has just terrific background and terrific attitude. You got Dame Laura, who's still playing and uh, still playing at a very high level, and you know, she blazed the trail. Really, mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. uh, for modern uh, uh, lady female golfers uh, in the UK, and then Katrina Matthew, who's so revered for what she achieved on the golf course, but off it as well in terms of Soham Cup. And I see that she's got the Curtis Cup uh, captaincy mm -hmm. as well. Indeed, I read that the other day, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, and actually, we 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 certainly have Katrina. Um, well represented in the museum and she very kindly um, agreed to um, to take part in in one of our interactive displays um, and you know she's she's looking at some footage um, and then she's sort of commentating on it and which club will they choose and giving her advice and and it was really great that she did that for us. Which is, which is super. Now, the Claret Jug, so the mm -hmm. open, uh, so it's housed of course, in the museum. So do you have any unusual stories about the claret jug? Um, rumours, which we try to ignore. <laughs> well, tell us it's okay, you're amongst friends, Angela. <laughs> I do actually remember um, Tom Watson visiting the museum with his family and it, it was a private viewing for, for, for Tom and his family. Um, and it was really lovely. And I remember asking him because i'd heard so many times from different people that when tom morris well obviously he won the open championship five times but mm. on one occasion when he had the claret jug he had apparently dropped it um so i asked him this and he just looked me straight in the eye and said no so whether he did i don't know but but no no nobody is going to want to um to confess their their their, their little claret jug indiscretions to to the very people who look after it and and have to get it repaired so they're not going to own up to it but it's certainly um it's certainly a far traveled piece of silver and you know which is very reflective of the fact that you know the open is is open to all the world and and it's been around the world yeah and so the the winners do they get to keep the actual claret jug for for a year so the, a replica? the winner the winner takes away um a, a, a replica so the original trophy was retired after yes. the open in 1927 right um, and then a 100% exact replica was was made and that's the one that the winner takes away for a year mm -hmm. and brings back um to the to the next year's venue and there's now a little sort of handover ceremony to mark the occasion but every every open champion is gifted a 90% replica claret jug um and and that one he can keep Yes, my goodness. Um, uh, uh, Tom Weisskopf, uh, who sadly passed away uh, last year, um, 
he uh, he told and regaled of a story uh, that was hugely interesting um, and uh, about Muir, playing Muirfield, um, I think it was 79, the 79 Open. Uh, and uh, for whatever reason, there were five golfers in total. Uh, it's probably best that I just mentioned Tom. Uh, the other four All-Americans were very, very well known. Uh, and they decided um, the Open had been completed. Uh, and they decided to try to hit a couple of... Um, of the sort of feather golf balls, golf balls are made, yeah, made of feather. Mm-hmm. from yeah, okay, uh, originally, uh, and a couple of the old irons as well that Muirfield, I think, had on display. Um, and uh, anyway, they they decided it would be fun to try and and do that. Uh, and um, the then manager uh was uh was waiting for them on the 18th so they only played the 18th the 18th hole uh, and he was waiting behind uh the 18th hole uh to say do you realize that uh, i haven't been able to go home for three weeks uh because of the open coming here and all the work that goes into it i managed to get into my car uh get home phone rings because of course no mobile phones then uh and i have to come back and find five of you guys playing uh, which you should, probably shouldn't be. Uh, in fact, you shouldn't have been playing with some of our uh, uh, old irons and old golf balls. And um, uh, they, they all, they, I, I think um, they all received a letter uh, to say that uh, they wouldn't be allowed to continue to play in the Open. Unless, <laughs> unless they wrote a letter of apology, which all five wrote a letter of apology and were then allowed back into playing the Open. So Angela, there's a, a little story which is not totally connected with the RNA uh, World Golf Museum, but there's a little bit of history. And, and Tom um, had a glint in his eye and he told the story. Uh, and uh, I mean, a terrific story. But as I say, I can mention Tom's happy, was happy for, for me to mention him, but uh, the rest I better not say who they were. <laughs> I love that story. I love that yeah. story. That's great. I I just yeah, hope no. they didn't cause any damage to those feather balls with the irons. <laughs> uh, I mean, who knows? But uh, anyway, they, they thought it was a good idea. It's an amazing story, uh, Angela, um, that maybe you could uh, regale for us uh, and the listeners and viewers about Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol um, was involved in painting uh, what is quite a famous painting uh, involving a golfer. And I would never have associated Andy Warhol with golf, rock and roll and uh, all the sort of fashionistas of the late 60s, early 70s, for sure. Um, he's iconic himself. So what's the story behind Andy Warhol and, and golf? Well, it's an interesting one, Bill. And actually, when you think about it, it's not as as odd or unusual as you might think, because Andy Warhol was obsessed by contemporary culture and superstars, mm. and, and that actually extended to sports stars. And he actually created a series called the Complete Athlete Series. And I think it was okay. 10, I think it was 10 athletes that he he chose for this um, and created um these silkscreen portraits because another thing he was very um 
I suppose, obsessed about was, was mass production. So it was not like art that we'd previously known where there is there is one copy um, and there might be some you know additional prints made from from this he just mass produced in the way that um in everyday life there, we, we were increasingly living in a mass produced culture mm. um so jack nicholas was chosen as one of the the athletes that he was depicting um and as far as i'm aware you know he sat for the portrait um it was then this was in the 1970s, I think it was 1977, the series was actually commissioned. Um, and then it was in December 1984, the General Committee was informed that, um, you know, the, the one of the prints had been offered to the club and it was turned down. And the reason given um, was that it wouldn't be right to accept a portrait of a famous professional golfer until such times that he might be um, elected an honorary member of the R&D. And so this was the one that got away, which, um, you know, as an art lover, I'm, I'm very vexed about, but, but there we go. Um, and then, of course, he did actually um, become an honorary member. Um, but by then, of course, the, the opportunity, it was many years later and the opportunity for the, the print had come and gone. And of course, the golfer that he painted was. It was Jack Nicholas. <laughs> did I not say that? No, no. But I mean, if I mean, people will be amazed. It was Jack know, Andy, Nicholas. Andy Warhol, Jack Nicholas. And did Jack ever comment on it, or is there any record of him saying it? There's. Uh, I, there, there is an actually a little um, clip on YouTube. It's very, very short. Um, and he's he was the interviewer asked him about the experience and and he was very positive about it. He was very complimentary about it. Um, but they do seem to come from quite opposite opposite worlds. Um, but as I say, the the connection was the interest in in superstars, which. Which, of course, by that point in his career, Jack Nicholas was. Um, gosh, I think that's a fantastic story, and I would never, honestly, have thought it was Jack. But um, I think when you talk about golf in Scotland, Angela, um, you know, it's it's what people may not realise um, outside of Scotland is that uh, it's sort of a game of the people that was. Um, uh, developed as you know, right to roam is a big thing in Scotland, where you have rights to to walk, um, you know, in, in, in various areas, um, and and that's not in dispute. Um, and golf was sort of presented as a game of the people. Um, and and can you just give us a little bit of background on that for those listening, maybe outside of Scotland, um, just to explain why it is the sport of the people. I, I think that's absolutely true, and it's a great um, it's a great hook for for golf that it can it can make that claim. And I think even when we go back to what I talked about earlier about the the, the, the various bans that had been imposed on golf, they obviously weren't working because mm. people were still playing golf. Sure. Um, and I think you know to say it you know it's a game for for the people. It's it's played by all levels of society. Mm. Um, so so the interest and, and the opportunity was there. 
Um, and you know, it's amazing how how that has stayed. And obviously, there are there are kind of different perceptions about, about the sport creep in. But when you go back in in time, it has always been a sport that was played by by everybody. Um, and even to the point where um, you know people take their sports with them. And when when people from from Scotland and then from the UK were traveling overseas, whether it was on business or for, for whatever reason, and they were setting up practically makeshift courses as well um, and fashioning clubs and balls from whatever materials they could find. It just says something about the, um, you know, it's almost it's, it's in our blood, you know, it's in our, mm. it's in our DNA. It's just yeah. something that people feel very, very passionate about and, and just weren't prepared to give up. Yes. And, you know, and, and it's an amazing thing, you know, uh, golf can be seen as elitist, uh, I guess, but, um, you know, in terms of Ireland, uh, you know, there's always somebody in your family played golf, or there's an uncle, your dad, or, your, you know, whatever. Uh, and, and there's always that big family connection and people went to the golf clubs on a Sunday for Sunday lunch. And that was sort of a, a big thing, uh, maybe say less so now, but still happens uh, in quite big numbers. But in Scotland, it seemed to go just a bit deeper. And it did, you strike me, you know, as, as uh, you know, you, irrespective of your background, irrespective of your job, uh, you know, you, you, you play golf. And, um, you know, and I, and I think that's maybe a, a story that, people outside maybe even of the UK wouldn't maybe associate uh, with, with Scotland, uh, you know, or with golf, maybe more than Scotland. Uh, and I think it's really important. And you still see it, you know, uh, the, these days you've got public golf courses available uh, and played by a whole variety of people from a whole variety of backgrounds. So when we talk about, you know, diversity and we talk about all these great things uh, that are so, so important in society, um, I guess we could doff a cap even though you have still the elite type of uh, kings and queens um, association, but we sort of doff a cap to, to, to golf, uh, particularly in the early days, because it was pretty inclusive. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely right. And, and obviously, you know, we have this new exciting project at, at Letham Hill opening. Yes. Um, Let's hear about that, Angela. Yeah, which um, is not something I'm actually directly in, involved with, but um, you know, I'm hearing all about it from from colleagues, and it's um, you know, you talk about diversification, and it's all about finding ways in which you can you can attract new generations of golfers and families, um, and it's not just you know, hardcore 18 holes of the golf course. It's, yeah. it's all the other activities that, that help to, you know, bring about the excitement to, to go out onto the course. And um, it's going to be really exciting and interesting to see how, how this evolves because it could be a whole new um, departure for, for the sport. And yes, it is all about diversification and finding new ways to encourage and, and attract people um, from as young an age as possible. I know. I mean, I saw a statistic that sixty percent of new golfers coming in, I think, is worldwide are, are, are females, uh, and uh, there's obviously something happening there, which is great. So I think what what people will will come to realise and actually see for themselves over the next number of years is a is a different uh, potentially golf presented in a different way 
uh, to a different um, subset of people. Uh, and, and I think you know we've got to watch out for um, how this evolves. Um, embryonic, because the classic 18 holes still exists, uh, and uh, but there are things happening in world golf um, that uh, that have shaken uh, the foundation slightly. Uh, but I think what could come out of that is, is various options of nine holes, six holes. You know, golf courses being designed, uh, you know, possibly in a different way, and uh, as well to encourage participation. So yeah, I, I think Angela, it's it's going to be really really interesting. So mm -hmm. I, I, thank you for your time, but I do have one last question, Angela. I know you're a really busy person, but I think this is fabulously interesting, and hopefully you can share it with us. If I said, why was the RNA formed? In 2004, people would say, "What, Bill? You've got that wrong at 17." You know, uh, but actually, I haven't got it wrong. The RNA was formed in 2004. So, how can that be the case, Angela? Yes. Well, I'll I'll try and explain how it came about. So, so we had the Royal and Ancient Golf Club, which was formed in in 1754, um, and the responsibilities of the club grew and it took on the governance um, in 1897 and formed the Rules of Golf Committee. It was responsible for running championships um, and also um, for distributing profits back into the game. So there was a big golf development side um, evolving as well and, and developing. So the club's remit was really expanding but it was still a private members club. Mm. And then events sort of overtook things and as part of the, the club's responsibilities for, for equipment and equipment standards um, and regulating equipment, um, Ping um, issued a, a, a writ on the, the R&D, the USGA, and individual members of both organisations. This was during the Walker Cup in 1989, um, whilst um, the GB&I team were celebrating, um, I think, their first victory on yeah. US soil. So it was a really you know, exciting time. And then this happened. Um, so basically, the 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 R and D and the USGA were being sued for a hundred million dollars, um, which could actually have trebled, um, and of course the members were liable. The individual members mm. were liable for this. So, anyway, long story short, it got thrown out of um, or didn't even get to court. It was everything was was dismissed. Um, so. That was kind of maybe the starting point for introducing a, a reorganisation whereby the club would remain a private members club, but the external activities would be taken care of by um, a group of companies. Um, and so that's what happened. So it took away all the, all the, the potential liability if something went wrong from the members to the companies um, and so they sit under um, two trust companies, trust company number one and trust company number two. Um, and as I said, they, they, you know, they oversee all the external activities. So the governance, the championships, um, the golf development, um, that all sits within the corporate structure. So it was really a means of 
protecting the members. But because the R&D's responsibilities or the club's responsibilities as it was had become so vast, um, it really made sense to review the structure um, and to introduce these changes. And, and it's worked really well. And now we all, you know, the club and, and the group of companies work very much alongside each other. Great. I mean, what a story. My God. Uh, so uh, just goes to show, and, and someone was thinking on their feet, that's for sure, to come up with that solution. Um, <laughs> and, and, and there are a couple of other museums, golf museums, of course, in the world. Um, and uh, just for the listeners and, and viewers, um, can you explain where, where they are that you know of and, um, and, and what to expect uh, if, if they go to those particular museums? Yeah, so there's the USGA Museum, which is in Far Hills in New Jersey, and it's located within the, you know, the, the HQ. Um, so and, and I've been a couple of times and you sure. know, it's, a, it's a really, really fantastic museum. They have a beautiful collection, really beautifully presented um, and you'll get great, great history there. You'll get a great welcome from the team there as well. And, um, you know, a fantastic collection um, and probably similar to us that they're not able to get all of their collection out and display it at mm. any one time. Um, the World Golf Hall of Fame in Florida is, well, it, it, it's massive. It's, it's really enormous, but um, they're, they're, they're quite different in that it's a Hall of Fame and a museum as well. So they have that sort of dual um, responsibility. Yes. But again, it's a really, really fantastic place to visit if anyone, any of your listeners ever get the opportunity. It's well worth a visit. Great stuff. Anja, 25 years, my goodness, that's absolutely terrific. Uh, and as I said before earlier, the Museum and Heritage Director of the RNA World Golf Museum. Angela Hai, thank you so much for coming on View from the Lock. We have thoroughly enjoyed your company. The stories are unique, uh, and I am sure we'll get a lot of feedback and response. Angela, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Bill. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.